Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, the Center's Vice President for Scholarly Programs. It's my pleasure to introduce this special series of Discovery and Inspiration episodes. Each year, the National Humanities Center welcomes up to 40 scholars from across the United States and abroad who spend their time working on scholarly projects to enhance our understanding of the human experience. Our usual Discovery and Inspiration podcasts are recorded during their year at the Center as they are immersed in the research and writing process. These special episodes of the Discovery and Inspiration podcasts, however, feature National Humanities Center fellows discussing their completed projects, which have now been published. These conversations were part of the Center's virtual book talk series in 2020, 21, and 2022, which were recorded originally on YouTube with a live online audience. I hope you will enjoy this fascinating conversation with one of our amazing scholars as they share insights into what their research reveals about the world we share. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this evening's virtual book club gathering. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the National Humanities Center, and your host for this evening's event. Over the past two months, citizens across our country and around the world have taken to the streets, to social media, and to print, insisting that we finally proactively address the systemic racism that has persisted as the original sin of our country, producing untold suffering for generations. Tonight, and over the next six weeks, we will be joined by six exceptional scholars whose work has helped illuminate the long, bitter history of racial oppression in the United States, and the heroic efforts of those who have struggled to create a more just and equitable world for all of us. Our guest this evening is Professor Jacqueline Dowd-Hall, Julia Cherry Spruill Professor Emerita of History, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she was the founding director of the Southern Oral History Project. Professor Hall was one of the innovative scholars who helped establish the field of women's history, and her work in Southern labor history pioneered new directions in the study of the civil rights movement. For those remarkable scholarly contributions, she was awarded the National Humanities Medal in 1999. Professor Hall is past president of the Organization of American Historians and the Southern Historical Association and founding president of the Labor and Working Class History Association. The number of awards she has received for her teaching and her scholarship are far too numerous to list, but they include her election to both the Society of American Historians and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 1996-97, Jacqueline Hall was a fellow at the National Humanities Center, working on a project she had been researching and developing since the 1970s. That project, tracing the lives of three remarkable sisters struggling with their family's legacy of slavery and white supremacy, was published last year to wide acclaim. Sisters and Rebels, A Struggle for the Soul of America, received the 2020 Penn America Jacqueline Bograd Weld Award for Biography, the 2020 Summer Cell Prize for the Best Book on the History of the American South, 
and a 2020 Prose Award from the Association of American Publishers for Outstanding Work in a Trade Press. Jacqueline Hall has graciously agreed to talk with us this evening about this book and the story of the Lumpkin sisters, Elizabeth, Grace, and Catherine. Welcome, Jacqueline Hall, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Robert, and the rest of the center staff for bringing us together around this urgent topic. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk about this book, uh, which I began to think about in earnest as a book during that wonderful year I, sent, I uh, spent at the center. Sisters and Rebels weaves together the stories of three sisters who were born into a former slave-owning family in Georgia at the end of the 19th century and steeped in devotion to white supremacy and the lost cause. Elizabeth, the oldest, was a, a famous uh, orator on the veterans, Confederate Veterans Reunion Circuit. She pushed at gender boundaries, but upheld the racial system till the day she died. Grace became a radical novelist focused on the working women of the South. Catherine Dupree Lumpkin, who is the moral center of the book, is best known for her classic autobiography, The Making of a Southerner, in which she rejected the system of racial capitalism in which she had been raised. These women, like the rest of us, did not get to choose the family and the place they were born into, but they did have a choice about how to reckon with that legacy. And this book is about the choices they made and how the ties of sisterhood were tattered and torn as each one grappled with her upbringing in her own way, situating these individuals within networks of family, friendship, and romance. I, the book spirals uh, outward to tell sweeping stories of 20th century American history. We are products of and can draw on and learn from that history, both in the sense of uh, cautionary tales and in the sense of inspiration. I begin uh, the book with the distorted retelling of slavery, civil war, and reconstruction that the sisters' generation inherited. That retelling was not history as it happened. It was a malign misrepresentation that uh, casts a shadow on white public memory to this day. But those distortions and the system of white supremacy they upheld were not the whole story as the lives of Catherine, Grace, and their cohort of dissenting women suggests. Following these lives uh, forward, I turn to the alternatives that cohort imagined and we have forgotten. I lift up the faith-based interracial student movement of the 1920s, a buried tradition of radical feminist literature, buried but often rediscovered, and the aspirations 
of the left feminist um, wing of the New Deal. All of these were stymied by the tragic reversals of the post-World War II Red Scare, embodied most famously by Joseph McCarthy, but perpetrated by an astounding array of governmental and non-governmental actors. I end the book at the open door of the women's and civil rights movements of the 60s and 70s, tying those movements back to the seeds planted by Grace and Catherine's generation. I've always been aware that the story of uh, race, radicalism and reaction I was telling spoke to my own times. That is what drew me to it in the first place, but I could not have predicted how explosively resonant that history would turn out to be now in our present moment. I was in the final stages of uh, writing Sisters and Rebels when one of the most conservative Republican regimes in the country took over all three uh, branches of North Carolina's government. My husband and I threw ourselves into the Moral Mondays movement led by the Reverend William Barber, which helped to blunt that takeover. We then watched as in uh, horror as Trump ascended to the presidency. My book appeared in the spring of 2019. A year later, a pandemic uh, coupled with gut-wrenching police killings of African-Americans has driven, driven home the deadly inequalities built into our economic, medical, and criminal justice systems. Multiracial protests are hammering home the message of Black Lives Matter and toppling Confederate monuments in town after town. In response, white as well as black Americans are thinking about racism as Catherine Dupree Lumpkin did in her own time. As in her words, a social, economic, psychological complex that can only be dismantled through deep-seated moral and structural change. At the same time, the social democratic ideals that animated the left, the New Deal left, are again gaining traction. These developments have a through line that goes back to the younger Lumpkin sisters' introduction into and then rejection of white supremacy and the cult of the lost cause. All are part of what the great civil rights leader Ella Baker called a continuity of struggle. Yet I also find myself thinking about what the historian Bob Korstad, who um, being my husband is right here in this room, um, has called the metamorphosis of white supremacy, by which he means the way in which the resistance to uh, progressive movements regroups and reemerges in new forms. I feel that we are at a crossroads similar to the one Catherine and her allies faced in the late 1940s as they tried to push forward the New Deal in the face of McCarthyism. In short, a passionate burst of progressivism is up against powerful forces of reaction. 
I'll turn now uh, to how I got interested in the sisters in the first place and how I wrote this book. Uh, then I'll return to, the, uh, to speak to the challenges uh, that face us now. I first read Catherine's autobiography in the early 1970s. I was living in Atlanta, immersed in the city's uh, civil rights, anti-war, feminist counterculture, but uh, trying to write a Columbia University dissertation in the then brand new field of women's history. I was taken with the book. Catherine's portrait of the South is a land scarred by slavery, but rich in a history of progressive struggle, resonated with how I saw the region. And I felt a strong connection between my generation of dissenting Southerners and her uh, depression era uh, generation of activist intellectuals. Above all, I was struck by the fact that to make my, to, the making of a Southerner was as one reviewer put it, a book of hope. Here was this woman from the deepest South, thoroughly indoctrinated into the culture of white supremacy, who had struggled to free herself from its coils by unlearning everything she had been taught. She then took it upon herself to try to remake the South by showing white Southerners, other white Southerners, that they could do what she had done. Her goal was to show them that, and here I'm, I'm quoting from her, white supremacy is ground into our social inheritance, handed on from one generation to another. It becomes a habit of thought and mind that begins when the white Southern child with the white Southern child before she is conscious of herself as a self. And yet, no matter how deep our white supremacy's roots and how entangled in our past, nonetheless, they can be dug up and cast on the scrap heap as something quite alien to our common human natures. Still, I was puzzled by the book. I wondered about uh, Catherine's sister, Grace. She too had cast off her upbringing and dedicated herself to changing the South through activism, journalism, and fiction. She was in her time the more famous of the sisters, and yet she doesn't appear in Catherine's memoir at all. For that matter, what about Catherine herself? This is an autobiography, and yet it ends when she is in her 20s and in the 1920s, finishing a master's degree at Columbia University and returning to lead an interracial student movement in the Jim Crow South. What about her later life? What about her doctorate in labor economics at the University of Wisconsin and her pursuit of a scholarly and writing career at a time when women who aspired to intellectual lives faced soul-crushing obstacles? What about the decades she spent outside the South in Northampton, Massachusetts, leading the Council of Industrial Studies, a far-sighted alternative institution devoted to documenting the social history of the Connecticut River Valley, and at the same time, 
building a vibrant domestic and political partnership with Dorothy Douglas, a radical economist at Smith College and the former wife of the prominent Senator Paul Douglas. What about Dorothy and Catherine's travels to Mexico and the Soviet Union to see revolutions in progress, travels that gave them an internationalist perspective on domestic issues? And what about the years of engaged, of activism and engaged scholarship they devoted to extending the New Deal in, an, in a social democratic inclusive direction? I later learned that in the mid-1920s, Grace had decamped to New York and settled in the Bohemian Lower East Side. She rose to fame with the publication of To Make My Bread, the story of the legendary Gastonia, North Carolina strike of 1929. By the, by the early 1930s, she was, as she described it, a warm fellow traveler of the Communist Party. She was also living, uh, married to her live-in lover, a Jewish immigrant from Eastern Europe, militant fur and leather worker with literary aspirations. Both she and her husband were deeply, and in Grace's case, fatally involved with Whitaker Chambers, who in the 1920s was known as the quote, hottest literary Bolshevik in New York, but who by the early 1950s was one of the most influential anti-communist writers of his time. As the radical movements of the 30s and 40s gave way to McCarthyism in the Cold War, Grace, like Whitaker Chambers, reversed course entirely, joining a pack of former leftists who gained enormous influence by turning to the right. She spent the last years of her life denouncing her former allies and renouncing her own best work. When I moved to North Carolina in 1973 to launch the Southern Oral History Program, I leaped at the chance to seek the sisters out. Elizabeth, the eldest and most uh, conventional of the sisters had died uh, a decade earlier, but I found Catherine and Grace in Virginia, to which both had retired separately and for different reasons. My conversations with them were mesmerizing, but again, there was so much that was left unsaid. And I later learned that both Catherine and Grace, like so many non-conforming women during the homophobic Red Scare of the 1950s, had erased wide swaths of their lives from their papers. Catherine, for example, was happy to talk about her conscription into white supremacy as a child. She was happy to talk about her consciousness raising education at Brunel, a small all white women's college in North Georgia, where she encountered the liberating message of the social gospel and the social sciences for the first time. She had stories to tell about her experience as a white Southerner at Columbia University right after World War I, which reminded me in some ways of my own experience there in the 1960s. Most of all, she emphasized 
her years as Southern Student Secretary for the National YWCA, when in tandem with a remarkable group of young black and white activists, she led an anti-imperialist, anti-racist, interracial student movement that had close links to the wise class conscious workers education endeavors. That experience took place in the context of what we usually think of as the roaring 20s, an era supposedly of frivolous flappers and anti-black, anti-radical reaction, but which by following these women, I have come to see is also laying the groundwork both for the left turn that is usually attributed to the sudden shock of the Great Depression and for the Southern student activism of the 1960s. Absent from our conversations, however, and from Catherine's book, uh, was her long relationship with Dorothy Douglas and their association with the radical movements of the 30s and 40s. Gone were the years after the appearance of the making of a Southerner in 1946, when Catherine was cut off from her family, which uh, uh, felt betrayed by her autobiographical revelations. Gone were the tragic reversals of the 1950s, which turned the um, social democratic ideas and alignments of the 30s and 40s into sinister un-American activities and in so doing wrecked such intimate and long lasting havoc on personal lives and American political culture. Silently omitted too was the startling fact that Grace had named names implicating Catherine and Dorothy and colluding in the red baiting that uh, shattered the life they had so carefully built. In order to fill and contextualize these silences, I think I can say that I left no known stone unturned. I returned again and again to those early interviews, uh, learning something new each time I did. I interviewed dozens of their family and friends. I scoured archives for the letters they had not lost or destroyed. I um, read between the lines of their extensive published and unpublished uh, written work and uh, plowed through organizational and local records. I dug especially into the papers of Brunel College and the National YWCA. The Brunel papers confirmed the vibrant intellectual culture that Catherine had described, but they also revealed the surprising fact that romantic friendships between women were at the center of that culture. In the homophobic decades that followed Catherine's graduation, those friendships were pathologized and stigmatized, ensuring that she would never write or talk publicly about her partnerships with women. For that reason, those student records were critical in helping me come to grips with one of the challenges I faced, which was how to write honestly about nourishing same-sex relationships 
without doing violence to the way my subjects uh, saw themselves and wanted to be seen. A close reading of the records of the Y, which was a chief conduit for the social gospel in the South, drove home to me the point that Christian faith and practice had not always been and do not have to be associated with the right. Those records also gave me an intimate look at the fraught but generative relationships between young black and white women trying to work together in the segregated South in an atmosphere of unequal power relationships without models or guides and in a period in which in the North as well as in the South, it was incredibly difficult to even find places where they could meet publicly together. In this search for sources, I got some lucky breaks. A friend of a friend came upon a bitter, furious memoir by the sister's father that put him right in the middle of the violence perpetrated by the Ku Klux Klan after the Civil War. That memoir shone light on so many aspects of the sister's stories, including the years Catherine spent trying to publish a historical novel about reconstruction told from the point of view of a black leader who was a victim of the very Klan violence her father perpetrated, a novel that I might add, she was unable to publish in her own lifetime, but my colleague Bruce Baker and I have had the privilege of editing and publishing with the University of Georgia Press this spring. Perhaps most important, I managed to wrangle my way into possession of hundreds of reports comp compiled by the FBI, which surveilled Catherine, Grace, Dorothy, and their friends for decades. I spent years filing Freedom of Information Act requests and getting back stacks of documents in which everything of interest had been redacted. Finally, I hired a lawyer and sued the Department of Justice. To my, to our uh, complete amazement, we won our case in the DC District Court and the FBI agreed to submit to arbitration rather than appeal. I found, soon found myself flying to Washington to meet not with the uh, low-level bureaucrats I was expecting, but with top-ranked Department of Justice officials. Uh, to make a long story short, they finally forked over tainted but invaluable uh, sources without which I could not have written this book. It was quite an experience that I, uh, it was worth the effort and I treasure the memory of my rumpled lawyer banging on the table and saying, give this woman her documents. The American people deserve to know their own history. As these, uh, as these sister stories fell into place, I became more and more convinced that by threading these women's lives through almost a century's worth of historic events, movements, and debates, would I could uh, pursue a series of compelling political and intellectual projects, each of which speaks to our own times. The first of these projects is embodied most eloquently 
in Catherine's account of learning and unlearning the tenets of white supremacy and in the documentary record of her struggle to learn from and forge an egalitarian relationship with the black leaders of the student YWCA. My aim in parsing these interlinked struggles, struggles that involved both reading and introspection and learning from doing the hard work of coalition building was to drive home the lesson that white women who today are struggling to come to grips with issues of white complicity and privilege can, as Virginia Woolf famously put it, think back through our mothers, which is to say they can learn, we can learn from women's history. We can see how often women like Elizabeth Wumpkin have shored up white supremacy while expanding their own horizons. At the same time, we can find in her younger sisters and their comrades models for how both gender and racial consciousness can be transformed. In that sense, a central goal of the book echoes the goal that Catherine and Grace pursued. Like them, I am joining an ongoing conversation about how we can face up to and work through a legacy of slavery, segregation, and systemic racism in which white women are implicated in complicated ways. That legacy has been called our country's original sin. That's a powerful metaphor, but it can lead to the fatalistic view that white supremacy is an ineradicable, automatically self-renewing trait. On the contrary, as the Lumpkin sisters' stories show, white supremacy is hard work. It has to be inculcated in children as it was in them, and it has to be deployed over and over again to undermine the threat of progressive interracial coalitions. The second project that's stitching together group biography with big picture history allowed me to pursue involved recovering and personalizing progressive struggles that were organic to the South, struggles that involved blacks and whites, expatriates and people who never left the region. My goal in that recovery is to provide for my time what Catherine and Grace tried to provide for theirs, a usable past for the battles we are fighting in the South, which is, and in some ways always has been, a battleground region. Third, because the sisters span such a broad political spectrum and moved across that spectrum over time, that narrative strategy allowed me to show what the South's progressive movements were up against. Among other things, they were up against the determination of white conservatives to stamp their understanding of slavery, civil war, and reconstruction into national public memory, an effort that reached its height, not in the moment of defeat and mourning after the civil war, but rather in the wake of the interracial fusion movements of the late 19th century, which were met and destroyed by white supremacy, 
white supremacy and disfranchisement campaigns, a prime example of how the race card is used to prevent interracial coalitions. That battle for public memory produced the Confederate monuments that are toppling as we speak, leaving room for a new memorial landscape and a world that is waiting to be born. The South's progressive movements were also up against the racist, homophobic, anti-feminist conspiracy theories that coursed through McCarthyism and that in many ways have reemerged and reinvented themselves in our own time. Fourth, following the sisters and their cohort through time allowed me to lift up the left feminist strand of the women's movement in order to challenge two um, habits of mind. The first is the habit of viewing the women's movement as a single issue of campaign monopolized by the white middle class. The second is the habit of drawing a bright line between the so-called old left of the 30s and 40s and the new left of the 60s and 70s. The former was supposedly consumed by the class struggle and the goal of economic justice and indifferent to gender and racial issues. The latter supposedly jettisoned class, alienated white workers and devoted itself to so-called identity politics and cultural battles. This dichotomy seeps into discussion of other periods and movements as well. It has surfaced recently in critiques of today's protests as being obsessed with cultural power at the expense of economic transformation. And I'm quote, in fact, as so many black activists and intellectuals have pointed out, today's protesters are demanding what other movements for racial equality, from reconstruction to civil rights have demanded, which is both racial and economic justice. In Sisters and Rebels, I center a tradition of left feminism that also challenges such either or thinking. That tradition exemplifies, again, in Ella Baker's words, a continuity of struggle in which radical women, both in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and today have linked women's emancipation with racial and economic justice and have infused feminist consciousness into movements that do not explicitly uh, prioritize gender equality, especially battles for labor and civil rights and for a strong inclusive safety net. During the Great Depression, left feminists did something similar to what the left wing of the Democratic Party is trying to do today. In a time of crisis that made it impossible to ignore the poverty, precarity, and um, inequality of American life and melted traditional obstacles to government action, they fought to push the New Deal in a social democratic inclusive direction. They did so in part by trying to shift the cost of the, of the safety net to the wealthiest Americans, and in part by trying to expand it to include blacks of both, race, of both genders and marginalized white women, groups that were originally excluded 
from landmark New Deal legislation. The women I write about devoted themselves to that effort, but they occupy a mostly invisible position, even within the scholarship on uh, women and the New Deal. Of course, the key figure of Franklin Roosevelt still uh, towers over our understanding of the period, but historians of women have told us a great deal about the so-called maternalists who staffed the, will the children's and women's bureaus during the 30s. They've also spotlighted exceptional individuals like Eleanor Roosevelt, Frances Perkins, and Mary McLeod Bethune. More recently, Landon Storr's wonderful work um, has told us about younger and more radical civil servants who brought a left feminist perspective to the Washington scene. But social change requires both an inside and an outside game. I think of the women in Sisters and Rebels as playing a special and little noticed outside game. Catherine and her partner, Dorothy Douglas, and their allies were independent writers and policy intellectuals who sought to leverage their expertise to influence public programs directly. But they were also committed to joining forces with labor unions and grassroots social movements in order to act on a core ideal of the period, which was that white collar workers, such as social workers and teachers, should stand in solidarity with blue collar workers, both black and white. That approach, which included both respect for expertise and solidarity across class and racial lines speaks directly to our historical moment. A moment when the gig economy is replacing manufacturing jobs so that even universities are dependent on contingent labor, blurring the line between adjunct professors and fast food workers. A moment in which a pandemic has re revealed uh, that we are all vulnerable if unequally to a broken medical system and to just-in-time supply chains linked to pools of cheap labor in the global south, regions that figure into the American economy, much as the cheap labor U.S. South figured in the Lumpkin Sisters Day, a moment in which so much of the workforce is facing conditions that recall the Great Depression, a moment that calls out for bold government actions similar to those that the New Deal left hoped for, but only partially achieved. I'll end with the fifth of the projects this book allowed me to pursue. I said earlier that in writing about the Lumpkin sisters, I wanted to join the conversation about reckoning with racism. Likewise, like them, I want to blur the lines between writing and activism. All three of the sisters believed that human beings are creatures of narrative and that cultural scripts, the stories we tell about the world are as critical to social change as are explicitly political maneuvers. Elizabeth, the eldest, believed correctly that whether white Americans across the country bought into the lost cause narrative mattered. And she furthered that narrative until the day she died. Catherine and Grace believed 
the counter stories they were telling were political acts. At the core of those stories was a challenge to the tendency to view the South as a reservoir of backwardness and reaction that stands as an exception to American innocence and progress. Grace mounted that challenge most powerfully in To Make My Bread, in which she put forward a view of the Southern mountains that countered the hillbilly stereotypes that persist to this day. Catherine's autobiography challenged the typecasting of the South in even more complex ways. Central to her story of self-transformation was the process of study and experience that allowed her to acquire a new understanding of history, a new narrative of the past. It was only when she learned about the South's history of progressive struggle that she could truly break free from the miseducation of her youth, because it was only then that she could reject her father's equation of Southern identity with white supremacy. She could identify with a different dissident insurgent South instead. In short, she did not have to deny her identity as a white Southerner in order to devote herself to building a different future for the region and the nation. I, uh, in turn, position myself as a native daughter and I wrote this book in the hope of telling my own counter stories about women, interracial struggle in the South. So thanks uh, to the center again, uh, and to all of you for tuning in and for giving me the chance to um, reflect on this book in this strange, frightening, um, possibility-filled uh, circumstance in which we find ourselves. I'll, I'll be happy to take questions. Let's see. So we have some questions for you. The first question from our audience asks uh, about the FBI documents, uh, no surprise. Um, and this uh, person asks, can you say a little bit more about the process of obtaining the government documents? Uh, specifically, how long it took you to obtain those documents? Um, and uh, also, could you say a bit about the highlights that you found in those documents that might uh, be interesting to our audience? I filed my first Freedom of Information Act request shortly after Catherine died in the late 1980s. So, and I, I, this, I finally um, got the the, uh, a selection of the documents that I was seeking in um, mm, about 10 years ago. So it took a long, long time. Um, as far as what I learned from those documents is concerned, first of all, because they, these women lost or destroyed so many of their papers, I faced an incredible challenge in just um, tracing the basics of their lives, where they were, who their friends were, what happened when, and so on. And the FBI bundling as it, 
as these agents were and wrongheaded and uh, mistaken in so many ways were incredible. They were recording incredible detail. Everything the people they were spying on uh, were doing. And so I was able by cross-referencing these spy reports with other sources to uh, learn and verify many of the, 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 the kind of spine of the book. But more important than that, it was through those documents they learned about uh, Grace Lumpkin's uh, betrayal of her sister and her sister's partner, uh, about her uh, volunteer volunteering to serve as a friendly witness to the McCarthy committee and uh, accusing her sister and Dorothy and other friends from her earlier life of being uh, traitors to the country and minions of the Communist Party. Um, so th those are two of the, the things that immediately leap to mind. Uh, how do you how did you come to the oral history uh, it, uh, oral history interviews as a methodology? Uh, earlier, you had mentioned the benefits of conducting oral history interviews with the sisters, but were were there any challenges as well? Well, um, the challenge I spoke to what I see is the main challenge which were the silences in the interviews, the things that the sisters did not want to talk about um, or talked about in ways that uh, were, um, uh, that necessitated reading between the lines. Um, however, I will say that strangely enough, Although I, as the uh, director of the oral history program, have devote, devoted a, a lot of my life to conducting and using and preserving oral histories, it's nevertheless is the fact that um, these early interviews that I did, I, I didn't trust them as much as I, at the beginning, as much as I ended up trusting them at the end. Um, in Catherine's case in particular, I, and, and even in Grace's case in certain ways, it, despite the silences in the interviews, the things that they did tell me, I found that as I did, I didn't just take them at face value, which you can never do with oral histories or with any source. I triangulated them with other sources. I kept trying to find other kinds of sources that would um, either confirm or contradict or enrich or change what they, uh, the way they uh, described themselves. But the more I learned, the more I came back to those interviews and saw that there were things in them that uh, subtle things that I hadn't seen in the beginning that were confirmed in the other uh, research that I did. So another question is um, asked uh, about hearing more about how the differing views 
of the Lumpkin sisters and their activities around racial justice affected the family dynamic between them. The different views of the, the different sisters? Yes, how it affected uh, the family dynamic amongst them. Well, um, Elizabeth, um, although she, uh, well, let me say first that uh, the, there were four brothers in this family, all of whom were uh, for a long period of time quite alienated from Grace and Catherine. Um, the brothers, uh, some of the brothers refused to read Catherine's autobiography and were uh, hurt by it only because of what they heard about it from the other siblings who had read it. Uh, Elizabeth, although she disapproved of her younger sisters and tried to uh, bring them back to what she viewed as the uh, straight and narrow, uh, was never out of touch with them. And they looked up to her and uh, were fond of her and, and in, in their own way, uh, I wouldn't say close to her, but never lost touch with her. Catherine, the relationship between Catherine and Grace is the most complicated one. They, during the first uh, part of their lives, up until the 1940s, were moving in, in different, very different circles, but on very similar tracks. Um, they parted ways in the McCarthy era and during the Cold War and uh, were quite, uh, ended up being quite out of touch with one another and, and alienated from one another for a good period of time. However, in their old age, uh, when uh, Grace was very, very poor, very, very isolated, very bitter. Um, Catherine uh, came to her rescue, uh, loaned her money, helped her, you know, she, by that time, Catherine was uh, teaching in upstate New York. She would take the bus from upstate New York to Virginia to help Grace plant her garden and fix up her ramshackle house. Um, so uh, they remained committed to each other and sisters in spite of everything. So you've answered a question about the, the circles, the social circles of, of Grace and Catherine and how they overlapped. But I want to go to another question asking you to say more about the power of the narrative of a hillbilly South as an exception to the American dream to let other regions of the country off the hook for their racism. Well, it's it's not not only the 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 hillbilly South, but the South in general, has has historically, and uh, has historically functioned in literature, in popular culture, in the minds of, of many people, North and South, as uh, the exception, the sort of repository 
of all the failings of the United States. That's the, the South was the uh, um, land of slavery, the land of racism and so on. That view of the South, I'll give you one example of the, of, uh, the consequences of that view. Um, on the one hand, it, that view of the South helped to garner the sympathy of liberal white Northerners for the civil rights movement. On the other hand, when the civil rights movement uh, moved North and began to demand an end to de facto segregation and so on in the North, those allies, many of those allies uh, were very quick to change, uh, to have a change of heart. So I think one of the things, I haven't seen anybody talking about this, but I have a feeling that one of the things that's changing in our own moment is that because the idea of American innocence and progress has so has crumbled along with it, uh, maybe crumbling this habit of uh, sort of bundling all the faults of America uh, into the American South. I'm struck also by your comments about the white Southern child and the cult of the white Southern child. And uh, immediately what might spring to one's mind is uh, Harper Lee uh, and Scout and to, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. So do you want to sort of problematize that depiction in Harper Lee a little bit in terms of what you have discovered yourself? Oh, interesting. Um... Well, um, yeah, I think Scout um, is depicted uh, quite differently <laughs> from the way, um, say, Catherine depicts herself in her autobiography. She, um, uh, she is taught, but well, you know, in another sense, she is taught, um, she, she is a creature of her family and her place. She is being taught certain ideas by the way she's being raised. But in To Kill a Mockingbird, she's being raised by a paragon, uh, supposedly, who isn't really a paragon and Harper Lee's father wasn't really a paragon uh, of liberalism, uh, but she's taught by him. She has his model to look up to. Whereas um, uh, the Lumpkin sisters had a very uh, different model to look up to and a model that was much more um, uh, typical of the white parents of their generation. So another questioner asks, um, taking off from your, your conversation about the intersection between the activism, particularly of white women, uh, regarding the struggle for justice and equality. And this questioner asks, what role and hope do you see for the role of women today? And uh, if I may, I'd like to attach to that and not, not uh, that question. Uh, you also talk about a new memorial landscape with the toppling of Confederate monuments. Um, 
So what role do you see for, uh, for women today in the struggle for justice and equality? And what might that new memorial landscape look like from their perspective? And if the, if the Lumpkin sisters were able to design such a new memorial landscape? Well, um, I think that the gender gap is widening and is really important. Support for Trump among women is, and of course, among, uh, among black women is nil, but it's falling rapidly among white women. And I think that women can play an important role in this upcoming election. I also think that women, uh, black and white women, are galvanized politically perhaps in a way that they've never been before. I, I don't think we've ever had as many uh, amazing women vying for public office in line for possible vice presidencies and so on. So I think that the, um, the uh, evolution of the women's movement, and here I'm thinking about um, a recent book by uh, I, another former fellow at the center and a friend of mine, Lisa Levenstein, called They Didn't See Us Coming. It's a book about uh, the, the turn in feminism in the 1990s toward being a much, much more multiracial and internationalist movement than it's ever been before. And I think we're, we're seeing the fruits of that continue such that the women's movement is uh, well-placed to play a role in, in this um, uprising that we're seeing today. An example from my, my personal experience, when um, we were involved in the Moral Mondays movement, uh, one of the things about that movement that I thought was just amazing was its coalition nature. It was Black-led, it mobilized Planned Parenthood, the teachers, the, it was, the women played a big role in it, white and Black women played a big role in it, and it really brought together people who are sometimes seen as being in different political silos. So I think the women's movement is, 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 is right, right there. Uh, as far as the memorial landscape is concerned, there's, um, gosh, there's so, we really can, I, I wouldn't say we're going to need to start from scratch. There are plenty of uh, things that have been done that will stay and that will be uh, interpreted and contextualized in new ways. But there is in just so much room for uh, celebrating the multi-racial, multi-ethnic country that we really are. And that just is not represented in the memorial landscape today. From your lips to God's ears, uh, 
Thank you so much, Professor Jacqueline Dowd-Hall for a wonderfully thoughtful and meaningful conversation with us this evening. If you would like to learn more about the mission and the events at the National Humanities Center, please go to nationalhumanitycenter.org. I'm Robert Newman. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay safe and stay well. Good night. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Discovery and Inspiration. If you would like to view the original video recording of this or other humanities-related events, you can find them on the National Humanities Center's channel on YouTube. You can also find episodes of Discovery and Inspiration on SoundCloud or by visiting us at nationalhumanitiescenter.org.